Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we'll discuss the impact of Tuesday's election on the near and long-term agenda here in Washington, the state of the economy, and what we might learn from the upcoming jobs report with AAF's Douglas Holtzaken. Doug, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been a few weeks since having you on. We had uh, Chris Holt and Steve Prenti last week talking about some healthcare stuff. Gordon joined us. So how have you been the last couple of weeks? Uh, I'm doing fine. I have uh, zero um, complaints in life. I lead lead a very charmed existence. It's all good. (laughs) Awesome. So let's jump right into things. As I mentioned, Tuesday, we had a big election um, in a couple of places throughout the country. It seems everyone in town is talking about the impact of that election on President Biden's agenda in 2021 and beyond. Uh, The question is whether Democrats view the election as a repudiation of their policies and pull back or as a sign that they need to do more and double their efforts. What does this all mean for the near-term path of the infrastructure um, and build back better reconciliation bills? Um, I've heard both scenarios, you know, in reaction to the election. I I personally don't think it's going to make much of an impact at all. There was less news there than some people seem to think. Um, It's been well known from the beginning of this process that there are elements of Build Back Better that put the moderates at risk, and they knew that. Um, They went ahead anyway. Members keep track of their districts. They poll. They talk to constituents. So, you know, if if they're in trouble, I think they knew that before Virginia and New Jersey in particular uh, voted. And so I don't think there was a lot of news there. I think what you found out from those elections is A, the kinds of things you learn in, in off-year elections, like what local issues matter and education matters in Virginia and certainly you know, public safety. And so the, the police issues um, uh, came up throughout the campaign. And, and that I think was, was a, a big part of the Virginia uh, governor's race. I live in Virginia, full disclosure, so watch that. And you also, I think, got a broader sentiment of, of real fatigue with the the government, like, you know, I'm just tired of the government telling me I can't go to work, I can't go to this restaurant, I have to wear a mask, I have to get vaccinated, this, this, third. And unfortunately, the Democrats are in charge. And so you're getting the the blowback. Um, but I don't think it was a policy specific, you know, I don't like the Build Back Better agenda, so I'm going to vote against Democrat uh, state candidates. I don't think there's anything there. More mechanically, the same cast of characters is still showing up in the offices in the House and the Senate. And that cast of characters has gotten us to this point, and I think there's very little reason to believe they won't continue down the same path. Yeah, it seems like, as you mentioned, that, yes, everyone's going to draw their message the way they want to draw it. But, you know, the cast of characters are the same. It's the same TV show we've been watching the last year or so, and it's going to continue into 2022 until, you know, another election happens on the congressional side. Right. And so, you know, next fall's elections could change the cast of characters. That matters a lot. And... There is a, 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 you know, a concern that this foreshadows what will happen next year, and I understand that concern. But I think they knew that. I, I don't think that was was ever in doubt. You know, uh, as as we chat, there's yet another quote deadline where the House leadership wants to take a vote today, tomorrow, maybe but maybe this weekend. Will this just be a, another repeat of uh, an artificial deadline that falls away because they can't get to agreement? Um, we'll see. Certainly, if they do vote on what appears to be the consensus package in the House, right? They they will have done a couple of things. Number one, 
They will have stopped trying to pretend they can get on one page with the Senate and the White House in advance, vote in the House, vote in the Senate, send it to the president. This will be what the House wants. It won't pass muster in the Senate. It'll have to be changed. If it does get through the Senate and comes back, there'll have to be another vote. That's a lot of time, right? So this is, they, they may have a deadline of a vote, but there is no uh, end in sight as far as the process to getting Build Back Better. Um, and I think people should be cognizant of that. They will also have uh, openly said, we don't care about CBO or Joint Committee scoring. So we're, we're going to tell you what we think is in here and what we think it'll cost and what we think it'll raise, but we're, we're not, we're not going to concern ourselves with the facts. That's not going to fly in the Senate. So they're going to have to spend the time to let the Joint Committee and the, the Congressional Budget Office take a look at the actual piece of legislation and give their official estimates of, of what it will cost and what it will raise. I want to come back to CBO, but um, I just had a quick question on the uh, on the infrastructure bill. Do you think that that one could get sort of decoupled from this from this? They have to be passed simultaneously talking point or are we still at the same point where they're going to keep these on the dual track that, that, that they've been on? So the progressives have said that they support the Biden framework and thus they support this this piece of legislation. And they are the ones who were holding hostage the, the infrastructure bill. So mechanically, it looks like if they held a vote, it could pass, you know, in the near future and go over to the president for a signature. I, I think that carries some risk for the Democrats, to be honest. I mean, why then are the moderates involved in Build Back Better at all? They don't need to take a bad vote. Um, they could just, you know, when it comes back from the Senate, say, hey, no thanks. Mm -hmm. um, so the reason they were coupled together is, is, you know, each party had a reason to have a hostage. <laughs> and that, that really hasn't changed. So I, I don't know how this is going to work out. Fair enough. Well, we'll have to keep watching. But on the on the the CBO score, um, we've not yet seen a score on the reconciliation bill for the congressional budget from the congressional budget office. You mentioned that. What exactly will CBO be scoring in all this? Um, when might we see it? And how do you think the score will impact the bill's future? So um, CBO scores language, not ideas. So it doesn't matter that they've been talking about things for a long time. CBO certainly has gotten ready. But the actual score will be on whatever they are going to vote on on the floor of the of the House. And much of that's been written and, it, and now it's getting cobbled together, like, you know, paid leave comes out, goes back in. The language exists. Um, immigration provisions will have been out. Now there's talk about them being back in. Language language exists. Uh, but the pieces often interact. And in particular, in this uh, legislation, there will be tax provisions. Uh, electric vehicle tax credits, which have some spending components. And uh, the, so you'll get interactions between the tax and the spending side. And so they'll have to have the whole bill so they can look at interactions in the provisions. And the Joint Committee and the CBO will have to interact to get everything on the same page. And that takes time. So uh, John Yarmouth, who's the House uh, Budget Committee chairman, was asked about a CBO score. And he said that would be weeks if not more. And, and that, I think that's correct. So uh, what they score is, is final language because that's what you have to vote on. Um, how long does it take? A long time because it's complicated. This is an enormous, it was a, there's a, a 2,100 page amendment given at the rules committee last night. So, you know, just the mechanics of going through and, and, and getting everything, it is quite likely that as they score, they will find something drafting error that basically opens up uh, some provision to everybody in the United States and, and, abroad, and abroad and costs way more than the Congress intended. 
when that comes up, that they'll quickly have to fix it and they'll go back. And, you know, so we're not done by any means. It's, it's a long process. And um, I think I think what you're likely to see is if the House can get to agree, agreement on a vote, there will be a piece of legislation they'll vote on. CBO will not have finished the scoring of it. They will then finish the scoring of that so that the Senate knows what they're they're looking at. And it, and it will then change again in the Senate. They'll have to score that. As you hear this, you should be thinking, you know, will they get done this year? Uh, that's now an open question. We're we're in early November, and uh, there, there's not a lot of time left. And nothing moves more slowly than than the U.S. Senate. I mean, almost almost nothing. So, so it's it, it's starting to look like maybe they won't get, get over the finish line in, in 2021. I I would not have bet that uh, back in in March, April, May. I, yeah, and it seems like Manchin is even you know already talking about the election, pushing it, pushing that off. And Senator Manchin of West Virginia is I'm referencing and. Uh, and, you know, also waiting for that CBO score and saying that I'm not doing anything until not signing on into anything until I see that CBO score. He's right. I mean, none of them should vote without knowing the the score. I mean, this is a reconciliation bill uh, to to be a valid reconciliation bill. Every committee should have to meet its reconciliation instruction for additional or reduction in, in deficits. And we don't know if they did. Now we've cobbled it all together. We don't know if it hits the 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 allowance in the budget resolution. So all of this is poor budgetary process. There's no question about that. But the politics are, are about ramming it through, and that's what you're seeing. So yeah, I mean, how close do you think the current version of the Build Back Better bill is to its final form? I mean, we've you all already mentioned that you know things are in, they're back out, they're back in again. Democrats tell us they're close to getting this thing wrapped up. Nancy Pelosi said we're voting, you know, they're going to vote this week. But of course, that's an artificial deadline. But it seems every day we hear something new. What, what's going on? Well, it, it depends on the strategy. right? So the, the previous strategy, the one that fell apart when the president couldn't get everyone together uh, prior to heading off to, to Glasgow, was to, to get the House and the Senate on the same page in advance. Now that that's no longer the, the strategy, uh, the House leadership, Nancy Pelosi in particular, has decided they will pass the bill they prefer and let the Senate do what it wants to do. That means that they put in some things, they will put in things that most likely will come out in the Senate because they are provisions favored by her members. She needs all their votes. So the immigration provisions in particular, twice now the parliamentarian has said this is not appropriate for a reconciliation bill. It doesn't matter in the House, so put them in, get the three members who have said that's a must uh, for them, and and get it get it out of the, get it out of the House. Same happens with uh, the state and local tax deduction, that's a must have for some of the members. So they're they're now figuring out exactly what version of that's going to be in there. Get it out of the House. That's far from making a law. That's that's getting a vote that you prefer when you you run for election next fall. Yeah, I want to look at the long term implications of all this for a second. So assuming both, let's assume for a second, the infrastructure and the reconciliation bills make it into law this year. What does 2022 look like? What are the key factors that, that will shape Washington's agenda next year? Well, it, you know, the the infrastructure bill has really three important characteristics. Number one, it poses no near-term inflation threat. And that's one of the most important economic and political factors that's in the environment right now. The money goes out relatively slowly. Infrastructure takes time to build, and you know that's that's sort of uh, out there. Uh, it's a one-time thing, so it doesn't. It's about 
half deficit finance, about $250 billion of additional deficits as a result of it. But that's a one-time thing, no ongoing fiscal uh, implications that they have to deal with later. And uh, weirdly enough, although people haven't really focused on this, it's probably the most important climate change bill. <laughs> um, you know, a big part of the, the climate issue has already happened. We're seeing uh, in particular flooding and extreme weather events and and that's produced stresses on the infrastructure. Well, that's what that bill is about. Though the, the infrastructure can be modernized in ways to, to, to adapt as opposed to prevent additional climate change. That's an important thing. And so they will, they will get something done on, on something they care a lot about uh, in a way that I don't think they expected. So that, that'll be fine, that'll happen. Build Back Better is a completely different animal. Uh, number one, uh, as they have massaged it, they have successfully uh, cut down the number of years programs uh, exist and before they have a, a cliff, uh, that has tended to front load the spending in the bill. And if you front load the spending and in the extreme do all the taxes in the out years, you produce uh, another big stimulus bill. And that's an inflation risk. And that's something that would be ex extremely unwise going into next year. They already have a big problem. They're making it worse. Uh, it's not what they want. So they have that problem. Number two, they don't genuinely mean for these programs to go away. Uh, they want them to be permanent. And so if they were to get it into law, they would create big new permanent programs on paid leave and child care subsidies and, you know, all the things we've heard about child tax credits. Those are big new entitlements. There isn't enough revenue in here to fund them on a big uh, on a permanent basis. So they will have expanded the structural deficit that already exists. And that will be a headache for years to come. And and then the scope of, of this is enormous. And so they will change the, the character of what the federal government is involved with. Um, it'll be much more extensively involved in every family uh, with paid leaves and child care subsidies and universal pre-K and just an, an array of uh, child tax credits. The nature of the, the sort of interaction of the family with the government will be different forever if these programs are in place. Gotcha. All right, let's pivot to the state of the economy. You know, I, f I feel like we should uh, rebrand this section of the podcast, your state of the economy address, like the state of the union or something like that as an economist. <laughs> yeah, but if, we, if we do that and people know it's coming, they'll, they'll just start avoiding it because it's so depressing sometimes. <laughs> true, very true, true. All right, so a key concern is obviously inflation. You just mentioned it. People are you know, rightfully concerned about the rising price of gas, groceries, housing, and a host of other things. Um, the administration initially advised this was going to be transitory, um, but now suggests this could last well into next year. If you were advising the White House, what would you tell them to focus on? Well, I, I think uh, first, uh, we've really seen a, a sea change in how the Fed talks about this. Yesterday, we got a statement out of the, the Federal Open Market Committee. It was quietly very hawkish on inflation. Uh, number one, it got rid of the transitory word entirely. And, and Chairman Powell explained at the press conference, transitory is anything that's not permanent. But that means it could last for a long time. And people were interpreting transitory as a couple of months, right? And so they, they got rid of that word because the word's too ambiguous to be meaningful. Uh, so that was number one. Number two, they allowed for the, the quote taper to begin. They've been buying $120 billion worth of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. They're going to draw by $15 billion fewer in, in November and continue in December. And they allowed that if conditions um, you know, merit it, they could taper more quickly. The faster they taper, the more the more likely it is they'll raise rates sooner. So they they that that was, I think, a pretty aggressive sort of anti-inflation stance given where they started. They also mentioned for the first time 
demand as part of the inflation problem. And this, this is analytically correct. There, there are all these supply chain problems that everyone has heard so much about. And, and the official line from the administration has been, it's a supply chain problem, supply, supply, supply. But supply is only interesting relative to demand. If there's no demand, you don't have any supply problems at all. So the problem was they created excess demand with, with the big stimulus bill in March. And it's that demand relative to the supply chain problems that's producing the inflation. The Fed has now acknowledged it. That's a way of, of them saying there's a place for us in, in, in restricting demand, raising rates, cutting back on the, the liquidity infusions that, that would be beneficial for inflation. So they're setting it up for, for them to uh, uh, take this on. For the administration, they should always acknowledge reality. Like you, People do not like this notion of you know something is going on. They're paying more for gas, more for food, and someone says, well, it's not really inflation. Like, you know. Economists love to use core, like, you know, uh, inflation excluding food and energy because it's a better indicator of future inflation, but it's not a better indicator of what's going on. What's going on is everything and that people are paying it and they're unhappy. So acknowledge the reality and don't make it worse. So they really do need to worry about the structure of whatever, whatever comes out of this reconciliation uh, process. It, they, if they make the problem worse, they will bear the negative uh, fruit of that decision. Yeah. So you mentioned the supply chain challenges where, you know, we're dealing with that. You wrote recently that there is a lot of fuzzy thinking around this issue. Um, something maybe my mom is more concerned with than I am. The holiday season is coming up. So many people are concerned about that, you know, getting gifts and things for that for loved ones um, or family members. Why are we seeing these problems and what, if anything, should, you know, the government uh, do to address this? So I think this is simpler than and people realize in the end, one person's labor shortage is another person's supply chain blockage. And globally, we have labor shortage problems because of the virus. The virus closed the plants, labor couldn't get in there and work. So we don't, those things didn't appear. We didn't, we didn't have truck drivers. We didn't have, you know, crews for boats. And, and so now it's, it's all cascaded and it is a mess. And, and so the way you unwind it is figure out what wound it up to begin with, and that was the virus, and take it on. So again, the lesson comes back to the public health mission is the most important mission for the economy, and that's true in the U.S. It's also true globally, and and the administration has been relatively quiet about its global efforts. But if I was them, I would be, you know, doing everything I can on the domestic front, and but I'd also be touting uh, efforts to make sure that. Uh, less developed countries, global partners are all ha getting access to and, and getting vaccines out because that, that is the problem in the end. And, and you have to deal with it somehow. And we got, I mean, we got more good news on the public health front this week where hopefully where children five to 12 are now eligible to be vaccinated and all that stuff, which is, I think, good news. There's another development I think quietly might be more important, which is, you know, Merck has this uh, therapeutic, essentially a, a a Tamiflu-like thing you take, it's an oral dose. You take a course of it after you contract COVID to minimize the, the, the impact of it. It just got approved for use in, in England. So, you know, there's testing, there's there's uh, vaccines to stop you, and there's dealing with uh, cases so they don't become severe. You can turn this into getting the common cold, the threat goes away. And so all of those things are important. That's also good news. And I remember reading that this week. But finally, let's turn to tomorrow. 
um, we get the October jobs report. So as usual, going to ask you to get your crystal ball out. I'm going to get I'm going to pull up my betting website to see uh, see what 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 bets I can lay down on this. But last month's job numbers were well below expectations. What do you expect out of this jobs report? Okay, so here's the important thing for everyone to look at, because I know at 830, you'll be like me. You'll be at BLS.gov refreshing to get the, the PDF the moment it's posted. Last month's number was was low in large part because there was huge losses in education employment in the local uh, government sector. No one believes that's real. Everyone believes that has to do with the seasonal adjustments. Usually you get a big ramp up in, in, in September and that's everyone going back to school. And so the data expect a big ramp up. If you don't get that big ramp up, which COVID has messed up everything, that it comes in adjusted to be a negative number because we didn't get the ramp we expected. Well, that's going to go away in October. And so you're going to get maybe 150,000 or more additional jobs as a statistical anomaly because they're just shifting them from September to October. And so I expect a big number for that reason. Like the reality is probably 500,000 jobs somewhere in that neighborhood. The top line number could be 700,000. So I'm, I'm looking for a pretty big number in large part because of that. Gotcha. Well, Doug, thanks for joining us. Um, before I let you go, uh, you know, this was episode 89, so we're closing in on episode 100. I, I don't know if you feel excited as I do, but it, it's I'm totally pumped for episode 93. I can't tell you why. It's just <laughs> <been> great. <laughs> awesome. Well, Doug, thanks again for joining us, and I look forward to our next time. Right. Thanks, Kyle. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.